Good afternoon. It's uh, Wednesday at uh, 1 o'clock p.m. 10-19-2022. It's uh, 1300 for you military types. Um, let's move into this because there's, let's see, I got like 50-something tabs open. So my machine is pretty pegged out uh, with junk. But there's lots of interesting things to, to go through this week. And one thing that I did um, because somebody asked me about it was... Uh, they said, you know, how long does it take to do some of these kind of basic recon type things and find vulnerable assets and whatever else? So I actually went through and timed myself today um, looking for uh, vulnerable-ish remote desktop protocol enabled things. And I'll talk about why we're talking about RDP here in a minute. Um, but literally, there's a screenshot of how long it took me to find the, uh, the stuff I was looking for earlier. 21 minutes. 47 seconds. I'll show it to you again. Um, not, not that it's showing like super cool, how whatever amazing hackery somebody is, but like, that's literally as hard as it gets. Does that mean that everything I found, I could just, you know, rip to shreds? No, absolutely not. Did I find lots of results? Mm -hmm. And is this a numbers game? Absolutely. So is that also problematic? Uh, I would suggest that that is, is the problem. Um, and I went down another rabbit hole because I thought that this was uh, of value as well. Um, somebody actually hit me up with this on like a, a, a DM side of it. Um, what An organization that has uh, vulnerability scans, they have penetration tests done, those types of things. What happens to those um, results? Are they, are they curated and they're t carefully taken care of and kept inside of a, a protected environment or do they get kind of sent out to the internet? So I thought, well, is there, is there a way to dork that? Um, if you're not familiar with dorking, Google dorking, it's a really, uh, I would call it basic way to get some decent information to start off your um, reconnaissance of other operational things and other assets that you're looking to go after. Uh, this one was, Pretty interesting because I had to do a lot of poking and prodding to get the right results I was looking for. But the question I was asking was, well, if someone's had a pen test run, then we already know what's vulnerable because it's their um, pen test resources and assets. And then if that's the case, then maybe we can find the actual penetration test scans and results, which would give you a real run into exactly what's wrong um, with that particular asset in the system. And it looks like my video is acting a little weird. So let's see if this helps. Send some of this stuff through because whatever, it doesn't really matter because I'm not getting any prettier and I'm not showing a whole lot of stuff, but we'll just kind of run through. So doing the right things and looking for the right results. Um, I was able to find about 50 results. And again, nothing is illegal here. This is all above board and, and I'll notify these organizations. About to find 50 results, it took about, uh, like I showed on the, on the screenshot, took a you know few minutes um, of penetration test results from different organizations that had had someone run a pen test and then had put those penetration tests into misconfigured storage assets. And that's available on the internet if you know how to look for it. That being said, um, we have vulnerability scan data, which lists everything that was done. And some of these, the most recent one uh, was within the last... 90 days, um, well, a little older than that, um, but it's for a pretty sizable organization. 
and it has the totality of the vulnerability assets listed, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. So this is, you know, I'm not going to go into it and I'm not going to put this out there publicly because that would be bad. But if you know what you're doing and you're looking, you can find the actual vulnerability results for something really easily. Uh, and then you have those things available to you. Um, so, you know, is that, uh, is that good? Is that bad? Um, sometimes you have connectivity issues. That's just the way the internet works. So point being in less than 25 minutes, let's call it able to go off and do some research, find the actual penetration tests, the actual whoop scans, um, results for organizations found about 50 of them that are publicly available. If you're looking for an easy Avenue, low hanging fruit, I would say taking the literal penetration tests and vulnerability analysis and those types of things, the results, and then tailoring them into your exploitation operation, pretty significant. And these are not necessarily small junk up organizations. There's some government-y type stuff. Uh, most of it's overseas. Looks like there's lots of India in here. Um, and there's also some things around uh, organizations that do um, what I would call bank type work. Um, so that that's there as well. Now follow on to that uh, with the fact that there's so much going on around um, the issues for uh, RDP, which was, I think, the big target of, of the last X number of days, which is always an easy target. The question was, how hard is it to find vulnerable RDP assets? So did the same thing. Again, I showed the, the, the time that I took. Um, if you're familiar with how RDP works, it works on a pretty dedicated port. And yes, obviously, there's organizations that can have stuff on non-standard ports, but I'm just doing the basic, basic stuff here. So let's just look for the regular standard ports. Um, in the United States, looking for this particular RDP uh, protocol type of resource, you can find a few hundred of these. Now, this is pretty basic, but let's just say I found like 300-ish of them. Um, of 300, the majority of them are straight up RDP, old, outdated systems. Looks like the the newest one is uh, 10.0.2, which is not exactly newish or updated. But I mean, there you have it. It's uh, RDP, easy peasy. Find it, go after it, do what you would like to it. Um, okay, uh, I won't beat that horse to death anymore because that's pretty well beat. Um, Last one I wanted to look at was uh, how hard is it to find misconfigured or badly configured devices that are talking to the internet um, that have an, a, a, pass, a username of admin and a password, literally password of one, two, three, four. Um, seriously, one, two, three, four. Now you would think that that would be kind of an immediate, there's no way that you would get to this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, found about 400 in the US. Uh, vectoring in on that. There's about 286 of those, which are specific to uh, organizations that are kind of what I would call worth targeting. Um, and within that, uh, there's one, actually, I, I grew up in uh, Navarro County, Texas. Um, there's a county near Navarro called Ellis. 
Uh, I saw Ellis in there. There's a town in, in, in Ellis County called Waxahachie. Um, and then there's another town called Palmer. I got to notify these organizations because both of them, uh, Waxahachie and Palmer in Ellis County, Texas, have got misconfigured stuff with the username of admin, the password one, three, one, two, three, four, terrible, um, configured this way, talking to the internet. I don't know what these devices and assets do or are, but here they are. Um, really poorly secured. And the question would become if these are county assets, what's the likelihood that behind that county asset it's connected to something else that's really of value? So again, here it is October 19th, 2022, still finding these types of misconfigurations, vulnerable things, even though there's mandates and whatever else coming along and everybody seems to think that we're getting better. Okay. So let's, let's table the, you know, hackery stuff and looking for vulnerable resources and assets or whatever. Um, but it is what it is. We'll just keep hoping that eventually this gets better because of whatever uh, mandate, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, uh, there's a publication uh, on the opium data breach. Um, federal judge finalizes a $63 million settlement for opium data breach victims. Jory Heckman, October 14th on Federal News Network. Victims of one of the largest data breaches to ever hit federal governments are one step closer to a payout. Let's talk about the payout here in a second. Um, more than seven years later, it's taken seven years to get to this point. A federal judge on fi Friday finalized the OPM settlement agreement with current former federal employees. I'm a former federal employee. I'm retired Navy. I didn't get anything about this, as well as, their, as federal job applicants impacted by a major breach in 2015. Um, $63 million settlement for breach victims was fair, reasonable, and adequate. $63 million. Now, court documents showed 20,000 individuals have already signed on the class action lawsuit, but individual breach uh, claim is set for farther on. Um, we look forward to continuing to educate our members. Now, how many people were hit in the OPM data breach? Let's just go, uh, you know, see how many users OPM data breach, right? So if we take 63 million, um, uh, there's 20 approximately, this is from OPM itself. So approximately 21.5 million individuals were impacted by the cyber incident involved the OPM data breach. Um, 4.2 million were impacted, but separate but related to government breach following. So if you could add those in there, 63 million divided by 21-ish, how much does that tell you your data is worth to that particular payout? A few bucks. Um, your data is worth more on the underground than it is in this particular penalty phase of this trial. So what's the point? I mean, how, I guess the real question would be, how much money have we spent litigating this and crawling through it and trying to get a three to $5 payout for every person whose information was pwned in that particular OPM data breach? Is it really worth it? I'm a taxpayer. I would rather you have used that money for better, more valuable things than trying to just, uh, you know, give me three bucks because my stuff was taken. My, my shit was taken a long time ago. Um, I had TSSCI, I had special access. I had all kinds of other cool clearance things. All that's been affiliated with the opium data breach. All that was taken. It's all been used. God knows where on the internet. I really am not concerned about that particular day. It's already out there. Like it's, it's gone. So why were we running through this and trying to get to that information and, and, own this and whatever else i i don't know um litigation is litigation seven years of this going on how much money did we blow 
of American taxpayer money for people to get maybe a three to five dollar payout from the federal government. So what? What? What's the point? Uh, if somebody can answer that, please tell me because I don't have an answer. Um, I, I, I really don't. Uh, Dan Lorman published a pretty good article, uh, three cybersecurity surprises from state security chiefs. What were the top cybersecurity themes, including unexpected narratives that emerged from 2022 NAS CIO annual conference in Louisville, Kentucky? This is as of October 16th, so a few days ago. Um, I think what's most interesting here is to wrap your head around what they said as far as what's not going to happen. Um, Several states mentioned they may decide not to accept federal grant funds from state and local cybersecurity grant program, which that's out there. There's $185 million in that pot of money uh, because the paperwork, federal system monitoring uh, of their state networks and other legal language containing the program may make the funds more trouble than benefit. So here's a um, great example of government bureaucracy getting in the way of progress for the sake of bureaucracy. Um, now, it says flat on the article that, let me be clear, only a small number of states were saying they may not accept federal grant dollars, and most states are easily working to submit their plans and get the funding ASAP, but they also said that they are working with CISA to try and address their concerns. Nevertheless, it was surprising. Second, several states plan to submit joint plans with other states in order to remove the cost share requirements for their state budgets. So there's a cost share thing in here as well. Um, you're, you know, you're a state trying to get this money. Like I said, $185 million in there right now. Um, but, and there's, it's so much pain in the ass to file for this, this grant, which is grant money that they're sharing the responsibility. Um, I'll put this out there for any state that's, or local organization that's trying to get grant money. If you don't have someone that can help you write grants, please DM, contact me directly. I will connect you with people that will help you apply for those grants. Um, am I saying I'm going to do it? No, because I don't want to apply for grants, but I know people that can do this and organizations don't, shouldn't be stopping their, uh, their, their efforts to try and get this money based on government bureaucracy and the fact that it's a lot of paperwork. I mean, hell, that's what the government does, right? It's paperwork. Um, for uh, what's the required cost for an individual project in this applicants made by an individual eligible entity. So some state or local government entity, um, they have to cost share 10%. What's the cost share for a multiple entity project? There is no cost share requirement. Finally, a third item that was interesting during this CIO week. So it was a top concern for CISOs listed in the cybersecurity legacy infrastructure and solutions to support emerging threats was the top concern at 52% as compared to only 34%. This year, inadequate availability of cybersecurity professionals was number two concern at 50. So why is that interesting? Well, it means that maybe there's a trend going down that it's not just about um, not having enough people. If that's no longer the primary concern, and it's been that way for a long time, now the trend has changed slightly, Maybe that means these state and local governments are either finding a better way to solve the problem, which in my opinion would be MSPs, MSSPs, those types, or they're actually starting to use other resources instead of looking for the super amazing legacy unicorn XNSA people to try and do the job. Technology can help here. So interesting article, Dan Lorman wrote that, go check it out. Now, uh, this, are, this was published by Infotech Research Group. I was privileged enough to do a little bit of help with this. 
Um, it's free. Zero trust adoption barriers addressed in new research by Infotech Research Group. If you're looking for free stuff, go look at this. Uh, this is published by them and it's Global IT Research Advisory Firm, Infotech Research Group has published its newest research back blueprint, Build a Zero Trust Roadmap. The blueprint is designed to help organizations understand what zero trust is, how to move away from a perimeter-based network, and how to build a pragmatic implementation. So there's a lot of stuff in this article kind of running through the basics of that. However, if you go and you look at the actual guide, and I'm going to do that right here right now, it's really simple. It's really available. This is not some super gated pain in the ass thing to get. So it's on infotech.com, build a zero trust roadmap, leverage an iterative and repeatable process to apply ZT to your, to your organization. So super. Our advice, critical insights, impact and results. Now here's where it gets interesting, right? Build a zero trust roadmap research and tools. Build a zero trust research roadmap deck. You can click on build a zero trust roadmap phases one through five. Now it will take you to a gated resource there to start running you through these other pieces to get access to that stuff. But a lot of graphics here, uh, they actually have a, uh, what they call a zero trust protect surface mapping tool, um, program gap analysis tool, uh, candidate selection for solutions tool, um, progress monitoring, communications deck. So I think if you're looking for information that you can get where there's a little bit of a gate in front of it uh, as far as the actual specific asset itself, but not a gate in the overarching kind of a advice and advisory from this thing. Go look at this. Again, it's got really good information. It's totally worth you know looking at. And the fact that they're giving you um, the things that people ask for that they say they can't get, it's here. Phase one through five, build a roadmap. Zero trust mapping tool, gap analysis, uh, candidate selection solutions, like the stuff that you would look for is there. If you scroll down further, it talks about workshop stuff. So here's how to do some workshops around zero trust. Module one, module two, module three, module four, build a roadmap, analyst perspective, et cetera, et cetera. It's all uh, available if you read through it and kind of wrap your head around it. And even if you didn't go off and use this particular asset as your sole source, there's a lot of really good information here. So I would go look at this. Um, statistically speaking, I think folks should understand that there's uh, um, some data that uh, validates a lot of what some of us say around the, the better way to approach this problem, right? So this is on dark reading, um, Jai, uh, Vijayan, which I think I got that right. If I didn't, I apologize. More orgs suffered successful, and that's the key term, successful phishing attacks in 2021 than in 2020. Enterprise organizations appear to be falling further behind in their battle against phishing threats despite, despite heightened awareness of the problem and efforts to curb it. A new study shows that in 2021, more organizations experienced at least one successful email-based phishing attack than the year before. There were also more opportunistic and targeted phishing attacks last year compared with 2020, as well as phishing attacks involving ransomware. Proofpoint analyzed data from about 600 IT and security professionals on 3,500 employees in seven countries and gathered data from 100 million simulated phishing uh, attacks. Study shows that in 2021, 83% of organizations experienced, experienced a successful email-based phishing attack in which a user was tricked into a risky action. 
that is a, a startling increase over 46% in 2020. Now, the results are slightly skewed because if you don't take into account the context of um, how this plays together in the, in the larger space, well, what happened in 2020 that made everyone move into a space where you weren't sitting behind those enterprise protections all the time that you typically had when you carried your ass to the office? Well, COVID. So if you take 2020, move to 2021, everyone goes remote, everyone's using more of their own stuff, more BYOD, more cloud, more, more, more the possibilities that you would likely click or interact with more malicious content increase exponentially because the system's not architected the way that we were used to prior to COVID. So therefore that means that these results are in my opinion, slightly skewed, but the point really is more people are clicking on phishing links, statistically speaking, like there you go, 46% to 83. That's a pretty significant increase. Does it really matter whether or not you're at home or whether you're out, in some uh, other instance, like you should be at the office or Starbucks or in your car or whatever else. If you're approaching the problem correctly and you have the right technical controls in front of the user and interacting with that malicious content or stopping the interaction, excuse me, with the malicious content, then it really, I could care less whether you're at the office. I don't need you to be in that old architected environment. 78% of organizations experience a ransomware attack in which a phishing email was the initial infection vector. 78. 77% reported a phishing-related BEC incident, an 18-point increase in 2020. Again, those results are skewed because we're talking about a categorical change in the way systems were used over the last couple of years. But still, um, the takeaway is that this indicates that organizations are still relying on humans to not get phished when that's not a smart way to go about it. Humans are going to get fished. I've been fished. The thing to do is to not sit there and wonder um, how you can get someone not to click on a, a malicious phishing link. Um, just remove them from that particular avenue of context with the right tools and technologies. That's what I think anyway. So look at this result, uh, I think I think the trends and data indicate that if you're still trying to keep people from clicking on malicious content by training them, you're not going to get there. Does that mean you shouldn't train your people? No, absolutely not. You should train them. It should be valuable. It should be interactive, all that cool stuff. But you can't rely on people not to get fished. The data indicates that it's not wrong. There's an article out there on uh, securityweek.com, are cybersecurity vendors pushing snake oil? Now, immediately most people would say, sure, absolutely, this is blah, blah, blah. But let's be fair, right? Let's, let's go through this. So according to a survey, 96% of cybersecurity decision makers are confused by vendor marketing. Totally fair, totally accurate. There's a lot of marketing in the space. Okay, cool. Um, it, 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 well, not cool, but it is what it is. So, um, Financial investment is what talks about how this market grows, blah, 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 successful, profitable by investors, because it's all driven by investors that are trying to grow and make their own money on the far end. But the point in this particular article, really, if you read through it, is that uh, decision makers that were surveyed feel that they can't make a decision based on the absolute confusion in the market. Um, now, there's a lot of vendors in this space. There's thousands of them, to be perfectly frank. But if you look at other markets, there's thousands of vendors in those markets as well. Are those 
organizations also, and those leaders in those organizations also saying flat out that they can't make decisions based on the marketing that goes on. And go sit into a, a, go to a healthcare conference and look at all the stuff bouncing around. Go to an automotive conference and look at all the vendors marketing stuff. People aren't saying that they can't make decisions strategically in those organizations or entities, as far as I'm aware. Why is cyber so crazy different? Is it because we're trying to just buy a product that we think can fix the problem? Or is it because people aren't realistic about the problem they're trying to solve and they're looking for some one and done silver bullet thing to make everything better? I don't think vendors are actively pushing snake oil. I'm sure there's some vendors out there that just peddle absolute bullshit because there always are. I don't know who they are. I'm not going to name them. But in any in any market, there's always folks peddling fat pills, peddling diet pills. You know, the the uh, what was that guy from uh, oh, Billy Mays, right? The Billy Mays stuff. Um, it's just the nature of the market and the nature of how that grows. Really, I think the problem is if you're in a leadership position and you don't have a valuable approach to the strategy that's going to solve the problem and deal with the issues you're actually facing, then you're not going to get a product that's going to help you out there. Um, so are they peddling snake oil? I don't think so. I don't think there's malevolence. Snake oil is, that's that's malicious. That's malevolent. You're trying to just give somebody absolute trash and then taking your profits and running away with it. I would say the VCs are probably pushing more of that particular approach than anybody else. Because if you've dealt with any of the VCs, um, man, they got money to burn and they'll throw it into whatever they think they can make some money off of. But there's also a point in this article that's worth looking at, too, because it talks about how much investors in this space put their faith in the management leadership teams. And they don't really look too much at the product itself. Should you have a great management leadership team at a company level? I would hope so. Um, but what's really the most valuable thing in the space? It's the product, the capability you're bringing that will solve the problem. Um, I think investors are skewing the market because they're throwing money into this space, which is making people chase the almighty dollar. Again, I personally don't think that vendors at large, writ large, push, quote, snake oil. Um, I think there's a market that's in turmoil. I think there's a continuing evolution of the problem. And I think people don't necessarily deal with the reality of the threats and the space in which we operate in a realistic fashion. And they look for a sexy, cool product that will fix it one and done. And then you've got the investor side of it and that continues to skew things. That's just my particular view. If you think I'm wrong, you know, tell me I'm wrong or say what you want to say. Uh, there's only a few minutes left here because I like to let everybody get back to what they're going into. So I want to cover um, two things. Number one, Digital Shadows, which is a great company with great people, published some really interesting ransomware research, ransomware in Q3 2022. Go read it. It talks about key trends and developments. Uh, this is on digitalshadows.com. Look at it. It talks about targeting. I think this is totally worth knowing. Um, then the, the other one that I wanted to cover quickly was this article in the Washington Post. Few election offices have implemented a key defense against hackers. Why is this so pertinent? Well, because we're getting ready to come to an election cycle. Um, basically, it talks about that government or election related organizations are not putting a .gov domain at the end of websites. 
Uh, one in four local election offices websites use the .gov domain, even though it improves security and makes visitors less likely to fall for fake sites that could leave them vulnerable to hackers and influence operations. So basically what it's saying is those there's a study that shows that those local organizations aren't bothering to put a .gov domain because you do have to get a .gov domain. It's not exactly free or easy in many instances um, as part of this whole election thing. Does that invalidate the entire election process? No. But is that concerning? I would think so. If I'm going to go do something remote or digital to look for research or maybe do some sort of voting thing or whatever else, I would typically try and get to a .gov domain so that I know that there's some veracity to what's being put in front of me. There's an FBI CISA warning that said that foreign adversaries and cyber criminals will and can use spoofed election-related internet domains to fake to spread fake information, steal personal log information, and disseminate malware. Visitors to .gov websites have more confidence that they're visiting an authentic government website rather than a fake one designed to trick voters. The .gov websites also have inherent built-in security features that are not always found in commercially available web addresses that end in .com or .org. So does that mean everything in the election space needs to move to a .gov? No. Can they be .com or .org? Sure. But it's worth noting that you probably are more likely to get easily verifiable, more true information if it's related to a .gov site. And honestly, it's because of the bureaucracy that surrounds how to get the .gov site and how you post things and whether there's controls in place. So know that. Um, now, there are some positive results here. CDT Georgetown study offered results for election offices. Of the 7,010 websites that study examined, 89% supported HTTPS. Good. Um, Similar for county-only websites, 55% is increased there for HTTPS. For voters using election website, encryption helps ensure, for example, that they're able to privately submit sensitive data. So, yeah, you want to have secure websites. You want to have secure protocols that will help do that. Um, it does talk about the, the cost of setting up .gov and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, go read through that. Uh, I've been over 30 minutes here. Um, I don't know why video is not catching up because sometimes LinkedIn does weird stuff, but I promise you I'm still just as ugly as I was a week ago. I'll be as ugly as I am right now a week from now. And I'm not showing anything that's going to get me in trouble anyway. But it took me about, like I said, 20 minutes to find vulnerable stuff. Uh, I showed people the screenshot. We ran through a bunch of things around ransomware. We talked about election things in, in basic terms. Um, and then there's the points on you know, whether or not the market is selling snake oil. Um, always more to cover. Market continues to evolve. I would love to talk to anybody that wants to talk about this stuff. Um, as always, stay smart, stay safe, and stay secure, and I'll catch you on the next one. Disclaimer, the information in this podcast episode, aka episode, is provided for general information purposes only. By listening to this episode, you understand that this is not specific technical guidance from the host. No information contained in this episode should be construed as security advice from the author, host, or guest, nor is it intended to be a substitute for security advice on any particular subject matter. No listener of this episode should act or refrain from acting on the basis of any information included in or accessible through this episode without seeking the appropriate technical or other professional advice on the particular facts and circumstances that are discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only. 
All views expressed therein are those of the host and his guest and should not be considered as being endorsed by nor related to the host or the guest's employers.